This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. What are you guys drinking this week? You would think it being uh, a very, very cold time of year. I guess I should say we're recording and in Montana, we haven't crossed the threshold of zero degrees outside from the negatives for like four days. You would think I would be drinking like coffee or hot cocoa or a nice mug of tea, but no, I'm drinking an ice cold Montucky cold snack. I'm here for it. Well, we here in Wyoming have crossed the threshold of negative degrees. So I have a giant mug of peppermint tea. I'm uh, happy to report that here in Seattle, we also have not passed the threshold of zero degrees for the past, oh my gosh, oh, it's been months now, probably, maybe years. It Shush. is a balmy 40 degrees here. It's very good. Uh, I'm I'm double fisting the drinks tonight. I've got like this vanilla protein shake and also uh, a grapefruit beer. Wow. It's kind of a weird combo, but to be honest, I, I kind of like it protein and beer yeah That's i mean first theo bros got to get their protein in right their theo protein i don't know i don't know how that works <laughs> are um, you a theo bro josh i don't yeah. think so are we all theo bros uh, is that how this works how's land with you know. emily are um, you a theo bro oh no because <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a bro fair enough fair well enough. speaking of theo bros though i've been thinking about this one thing lately that I have been wanting to bring to the pod for like days at least, maybe weeks. Whole days? A whole day. That so must be excruciating. I don't know where this is gonna go. I, I did this is just where I want to start the thread to pull on. Nice. And just I just want to see where we end up. I don't really I have no idea where we're gonna go with this. I am interested in A, whether or not some of the Bible is satirical. B how we tell whether or not it is, and see if it is what the implications of it are. Mm. Uh, okay, because I've listened repeat? to some. Well, yeah, I can repeat that. Um, I, I want to know. A. Start if, with A. If part of the Bible is satirical. Yes. And those other questions like come out naturally for me <laughs> in that question. Just a just a solid yes from Emily. Um, <laughs> satire. Uh, so Josh, you're kind of the resonant expert on satire. You run mm-hmm. you run a website yourself, or at least you used to. Yeah, I used to. If anyone wants to learn, uh, if you don't know, uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about it, I talked about me running the satirical website called The Billings Beat in my episode of No Normal People, which is Stephen's other podcast. It was, so it was like a version of The Onion, but for Montana. And to be honest, part of what like gave me this question is that the fact that like after I've moved to Seattle... Whenever I like reference this website, I have to like explain the jokes to people. Like, even though I thought that they were pretty generic jokes and I was just using mm. like mm. the local mm-hmm. context to like make those jokes, whether it was about individuals or companies or communities, like I kind of just thought that there were generic jokes that I was copying and pasting the local labels onto. But like people in Seattle often 
don't get the jokes and like even when I explain them like they don't think they're as funny (laughs) and uh, it's that disconnect that makes me really wonder if some of the Bible is satirical and if that has bigger implications than if it's not satirical you know what I mean okay sure I like that I like that connection like if it's going over someone's head if I'm talking about like a local context in 2020 or 2021 Right. And I have to explain the joke. How much worse would it be to try and explain the joke if the thing in the Hebrew Bible that was written maybe 3,000 years ago? Right. Yeah, because like with my example, I'm only separated by distance. I'm not even separated by time hardly versus like the Bible, we're separated by thousands of years. Totally. So if ancient Hebrews would have the opportunity, like what jokes would they have to let us in on? Oh. Ooh. Uh, uh, I I have to think. I, I have to think. Yeah. Okay. Here's the other thing that makes me think about this. You ready for this one? Yeah. Okay. Um, When I was writing satire pretty regularly, like I was writing an article a week. It was always about local stuff. One thing I always had in the back of my head was like, I always felt like I was imagining a new reality, like almost like an alternate universe where like the things did happen, if you will, in a way that like is hyperbolic and ironic but then brings us back to the present reality because we know that it's not that way. Or I'm like describing real events in the language of a different reality. And to be honest, I feel like the Bible does do things like that. Mm. In what spot? I was going to say, do you have an example? So I I was reading up on this a little bit because I wanted to like see if anyone else has thought about this before. And I guess like scholars have suggested that Isaiah is arguably a very satirical book. And to be honest, I don't know much about why or like, the context clues. Oh, wow. But uh, off the top of my head, I would think about some of the like early Israel narratives where they're like commenting on other cultural myths and other cultural events and stuff like that. And they're like, they're making their own narrative. And that's really obvious. Or there's like some of Jesus's parables where it seems like he's talking about real people. Mm. Or sometimes he is. Like sometimes he's talking about the Pharisees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Jonah. I have listened to a couple podcasts uh, from some Bible scholars making a very strong case for Jonah being like entirely satirical. That was what I was thinking. Oh, interesting. So have you heard that one before? Mm-hmm. Have you heard any others? Um, I'm trying to think of any that like immediately come to mind other than Jonah. I Some of the other ones that I guess I would consider to be would be some of the writings of the prophets. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, I'm trying to think of one off the top. Like, Amos, I would say, is another book where satire is often noted. Mm. There, I mean, if you read the, in some parts, there's definitely irony or exaggerations um, and yeah. even ridicule, for sure, behind the words. But maybe what would help would be to have a uh, concise definition of satire of how we're using it for this conversation. Uh, Yeah. That's I think that's my difficulty in question B is like, how do we go about distinguishing where the Bible is satirical or not? Because like, Mm. I do think irony and allegory is different from satire. Okay, so that that then would change my answer. Like SNL Saturday Night Live isn't just ironic. It's satirical. Like they're not just making a, a sitcom where there's irony built in. They're like commenting on real events and real people or real situations. And to me, it's like the connection to like the present moment and transposing a new reality onto it that makes it satirical. At least in my mind, that's like, 
I'm not an expert on satire, I guess. And so I think that's, but that's what I think of when I imagine the type of satire that I'm familiar with. Okay. Or like someone brought up to me that uh, Romeo and Juliet is considered one of Shakespeare's satirical works. Like on face value, it seems like a tragedy Mm. because like two Mm -hmm. young people die. And then you realize that even though there's death at the end, which is like the, the common tragedy definition, it's actually a really comedic play. Like there's a lot of irony. There's a lot of. Yeah. There's a lot of like interplay between characters, but like broadly, it's a very satirical take on like wealthy people and their wealthy people problems. I'm struggling to divorce just thinking of satire in terms of like mythological writing, I guess. Oh, okay. How so? Well, because like we we talk about satire and even in your example, you're writing an article for the Billings Beat and you're you're almost imagining like an alternate reality in which this is true. Right. Mm. Which borders on allegory in a way already. Right. But yeah, is there a specific flavor that gets injected to make it satire over just maybe exaggeration or I mean, like the example that came to my mind is we can we can talk about Noah and the ark, like experiencing a global flood and the scripture says the waters covered all the earth. And for all we know, though, it was covered all the earth that the person who wrote it down could see. Sure. You know, like if, mm. if you experience, if I experienced a local flood of Yellowstone Valley here, so much so that the tops of the Beartooth Mountains were, you know, like plunged underwater, like I could easily call that a global flood too but I know sure. I'm not at the highest elevation of the earth. So like, I don't know. That's that, that feels like a weird example, but like satirical also being mythical in a way where you kind of extrapolate and like say something beyond just the facts of the story. Yeah. I think I see what you're saying. I'm struggling with it. So I'm glad you see what I'm saying. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can tell, uh, but yeah, I see what you're saying between like, like satirical being kind of close to mythic structure. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't have that problem, I don't think, because I see satirical not being allegorical. And I feel like a lot of mythic structure is allegorical. So mm. the New mm. Oxford American Dictionary defines satire go. as the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. Yeah. Okay. I actually like that definition. That's good. So I think that could frame our conversation. Do you see where I'm getting the like imagining a new reality thing? And definitely mm-hmm. definitely making sure you're keeping that the, the aspect of like humor. Like you're trying to make something so cartoonish or so ridiculous to point out. The other example that came to mind was um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where like they're like having mm. a competition and uh, Elijah starts like ridiculing them and like imagining scenarios. And he's like, well, maybe your God's just uh, oh. taking a dump. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I, he, he actually doesn't think that, but like he's imagining this new reality to ridicule them and to expose the truth. To me, that seems like the biggest implication of whether or not some of the Bible is irony. I think, or w- whether it is satire is that it being satirical doesn't detract from any of the truthiness, it actually highlights the truth. Like if it is imagining a different reality in some parts that are like hyperbolic or exaggerating or making fun of someone, then 
maybe we just don't like pick up on those context clues, but like that doesn't mean that it's not meaningful. It just means sure. that it's highlighting reality as it actually is. So if that's the case, then I mean, Jesus definitely used satire. So yeah, okay. Where do you think he does? Because I couldn't come up with a good example. I guess it, so. For sticking with the definition that I read, which again, that if we're deciding to stick with that, um, one of the first ones that came to mind was anytime he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. So I guess maybe a specific example, um, Matthew twenty three, where he's like, "Oh, you scribes and Pharisees, like you're hypocrites." You know, you build these tombs of prophets and you decorate with monuments of righteousness saying, you know, all these things. And yet, like, look at what you're doing. And then he's basically telling them, you got to measure up then to those before you. You got to step up your game. And mm. he's using like a mixture of humor and exaggeration, but he's doing it in a way that's like attacking and calling them out on their crap, it, yeah. so to speak. I've heard people talk about, like, talking about writing satire. I've heard people describe it as good satire should always be punching up and punching down or instead of punching down. And I feel like your example with Jesus critiquing the Pharisees in really dramatic ways is a good example of that kind of, like, punching up with irony mm -hmm. and dramatic critique. Mm. Yeah. How do you think the book of Revelation fits in that? Okay. Ooh. I don't think it's satirical. And... The part of me that thinks it's not satirical makes me wonder if even talking about the Bible being satirical is being too modern about our Bible interpretation. Like, is even like bringing up the concept, oh. the genre satire, is that like too modern of a concept for antiquityed literature? Hmm. Hmm. Would, what, you know? what, okay, if your answer was yes, why? And if your answer was no, why? I think you have to have a stance <laughs> for both. Ooh, Okay. So let's say it, right now, yes, it's too modern of a of a concept to apply to the Bible. Why? Um, we 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 can't just call the Bible like a TV script. That doesn't make any sense. We can't like apply a modern form of written genre that exists now but did not exist then. So I think it only makes sense to call it satire if satire existed in a meaningful way back then. And I don't know the answer to that, honestly. Does anyone? <laughs> I think so. I mean, people study it for a living, right? So, like, someone probably knows out there, right? I just, I just don't know. That, that's why I like want to talk about this because I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the implications would be either way. Man, maybe, maybe I'm still confusing the premise because Revelation to me certainly seems exaggerated and like building a whole fantastical world almost. Okay, around around like statements John the Revelator is trying to make. Hmm. I think the part of me that feels like it's not satirical is because it feels too allegorical. Like it's it's imagining fantasy worlds and like using dragons to depict real people and like it has stand-ins. Like that's what I think of when I think of allegory. Like something like Animal Farm. Like Animal Farm, the characters mm. representing specific people or specific instances. And it's like A represents B, but usually in satire you're talking about the actual thing, but you're like putting a spin on it. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think maybe where I'm getting hung up is like, we use the SNL example. So now I'm thinking a lot of like narratives in the Bible versus. Right. Because I think, I think probably the prophets stick out as satirical commentary on what is happening in their world and, and exaggerating to make a point. Like one of the, one of the verses 
Oh, I forget the reference. I know it's in Ezekiel somewhere. It just kind of lives in my head rent-free is <laughs> the verse where where Ezekiel is talking about how Israel was so promiscuous with Babylon that she's like lusting after dudes with the size of horses. Do you oh, know yeah. this verse? And and like <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the insinuation is like extremely pornographic right yeah so that definitely like that is one that sticks out in my mind and it's like okay he's exaggerating yeah to make a point about how loose israel is being with like their moral standards compared to the nation states around them i feel like that's a good example actually i really Mm -hmm. like that one um steven the other one you made me think of was uh, a couple episodes ago we talked about like faith the role of faith in politics. And you brought up like the son of God language that mm-hmm. John particularly uses for Jesus and how that, that would have been a context clue about the Roman emperors because they use that language. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, I feel like, I guess here's a potential positive implication for me of if the Bible is using satire in some places is that I feel like some of the critique of Christianity and some of the Christian texts is that Christianity looks too similar to some of the other cultures around it. Like it's copying mm. or it's like stealing from, but like, to be honest, I think that's what satire does. Like satire usually right, takes- it's being influenced. Yeah, it takes around, it takes what's around it and copies it, but like puts a new spin on it. Mm, that's really yeah. like with anything culturally, if you think about it. Right. So it would make sense for stories of the Bible to have elements or- features of stories that are similar to other religions or cultures of that time. It, I mean, that just, I don't know. I, I kind of see that as a well dumb moment, but for others that might not be the case. <laughs> so I respect yeah. that. <laughs> or the other one I thought of along those lines is uh, some of the Genesis narratives. Like some of those are often drawn to other like creation or origin stories of surrounding cultures but oh yeah like mesopotamian myths and all that yeah yeah but i don't know i think some people take those critiques the wrong direction because i think some people end up concluding that that's evidence that it's manufactured or not unique but Hmm. yeah like the i feel like the satirical angle like gets rid of that critique because then it holds that it's intentionally spinning a new narrative I think I agree with intentionally spinning a new narrative. I don't know if they have to be it has to be satirical to do that though. Cuz like Yeah, that's true. You know, like a lot of Mesopotamian myths, human life rises out of what is it? Like the body of a specific god like torn into pieces and its blood like fertilizes, right? And then the humans kind of like uh, grow out of the 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 body parts of whatever deity it was. Whereas, like, I've always heard that compared to Genesis, where creator, like, directly takes man out of the dust itself. Like, something didn't have to die in order for human beings to Mm. be here. So, like, raising something out of nothing in a way. I don't know where I'm going with this. It's just, Mm. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be careful with saying, like, just because we're putting a new spin on it doesn't make it satirical either. In, in In the same way that something can be satirical, it may be smack of mythic stylings as well actually i think that's a really good distinction because like just because someone mysteriously gets murdered in the bible doesn't make that book a murder mystery novel like just because it has an element of a genre doesn't mean it is that genre right i think that's a good distinction and to be honest that's my hesitation in using the label satire still 
Like, I still wonder about it, but like. Can we actually use it? Yeah. Or like, is that, I don't know what word I would use for this, but is this too like modernist of me? Mm -hmm. Like biased towards modernism, assuming that I am the better reader of that text. You know what I mean? Are you doing that though? I don't hear that in your stance. It's just kind of wondering out loud. Like, I wonder if they did have the concepts for for this style of uh, political critique or institutional critique. You know, I think if I was quick to slap the label on there, I think <laughs> I would be guilty of that. Though, you think so? Yeah, I think so. Why wouldn't I be? Well, because like I I can almost hear the opposite saying like why why would we assume that they were too primitive to be familiar with that kind of sense of humor Mm, mm -hmm. right and like be able to make the same critiques yeah like just because they don't have the technological Mm -hmm. advances or have had literature dispersed in such a way yeah um, that they're unfamiliar with the the genre i think we need to give the writers of the bible some credit because there's so Mm -hmm. many different forms of writing found even within like one book I know my church yeah. right now, we're doing a study on Psalms. It's an eight-week study, and we're studying mm-hmm. the seven different types of Psalms. And so mm-hmm. even just with that, it there are so many different forms of writing found within one book. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like, you know, we brought up the seven types, and some of my members were like, what do you mean there's seven types? And so I laid them out. I go, okay, well, there's, you know, imprecatory, there's lament. Like, what's imprecatory? And I'm like, oh, curses. And they were like, wait, there are curses in the book of Psalms? And I said, uh, yeah. Yeah, like when he says, dash my enemy's kids' heads against the rock. Like, yeah. (laughs) And so like, and I, and so I named all the different types. And so each week we, we look at each type and we look at, you know, the, the stanzas we look at in our footnotes of the Bible. Do we see that, you know, this particular Psalm would have had music behind it? Was it meant to be read in a more poetic way? author's intent and things like that and i think yeah i i think that satire (laughs) was definitely a concept during Mm. the authorship of the bible for sure may may had a different word and we may now have a different word for it but i think it was definitely a thing for sure Mm, mm -hmm. yeah because what what satire represents in literature is kind of what uh like the jester character represented Mm -hmm. in the middle ages right like the exaggerated clownish character there to provide entertainment and also have some some pretty withering things to say about like your kingdom's enemies or whatever which Uh, like your prophets kind of were that character a little bit yeah a little especially like ezekiel making some outlandish claims about how israel is lusting after other yeah yeah totally so Emily, I like that point about mm. genre hopping, like even within the same book or in the same author, or mm-hmm. even if it's like in the same book with different authors, because there's some of those. Because, oh, Psalms is a great example of that. There's Absolutely at least four different authors. So, it, well, and Jesus genre hops too a lot, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's what we don't have to get into this whole debate if we don't want to, but I feel like that's what gets me about the false dichotomy of the whole literal metaphorical debate. Because like mm. Jesus obviously does both of those things. Yeah. And and often he's like using the literal to describe the metaphorical. Same thing with like the mythic stories. Like mm-hmm. they're describing literal things that may or may not have happened, but with. but underlying that is the metaphorical that they're trying to highlight. I think that's where the gift of discernment comes in. Same with if we're reading satire in the Bible. So how do you guys 
when you're reading the Bible or like when someone's bringing up a hard question about the Bible, because honestly, I've gotten like some wild questions this week from some good friends that honestly got me thinking a lot. But like, how do you go about trying to guess uh, like what the possible genre or like surrounding context is? Because like, we're not all Bible experts here. Like people study this for a living. Yeah. How do you go about beginning to discern like where there might be a, a genre to be aware of or a context clue to be aware of? Or should we just always assume that when we don't understand it? I think oh, I think my default is probably to assume it when I don't understand it, and that might be a pitfall of my own interpretational skills. Sure, mm. uh, just because like if I don't understand it, it's really easy to write it off. Isn't the right way to say it, but it's easy to say like kind of ignore I, it. Yeah, a little bit. Like I don't get it. I mean, like if I'm able to dwell on it for any amount of time and pull what I think is a principle for Christian life that maps well onto the life and teaching of Jesus, then I'm like, all right, Mm. I've gotten what I need to from the story. Mm. Even if I don't completely understand the context that they wrote it, the context that they were writing it to, like their audience in mind, even if I don't completely understand it. Yeah. It it might be some Mm. of my, my early teaching in my, my younger life that was always like, you study the Bible, you pray with the Bible, and then you find an application before you walk away from the Bible for the day, you know? <laughs> um, soap method. That's what we called yep. it. That's exactly what it what we called it. The soap method. Scripture, observation, I... application, and prayer. This is a hard question for you to answer because now I'm like an I'm a master of divinity. <laughs> you are a pastor now. You um, <laughs> But I would say even younger Emily. And I am thanking her now, past Emily, you are one smart cookie. I would definitely say, A, it depends on what version you have that you're reading. And the only reason I say that is because not every Bible has, you know, footnotes or contributes or contributions from other like scholarly authors. So like I'm thinking one Bible that I have in my office is the New Interpreter's Bible which has contributions from almost hundreds of scholars where they give insight about the history of the book, the author's intent, the audience, things like that. And then it breaks down the verses and gives reflections and commentary and things like that. And so I would say invest in a Bible that has good footnotes. If a Bible doesn't have any footnotes or any type of comments or little things to look at in the back or anything like that, then it's not really giving you like wholesome information other than just scripture. And I think Mm. we as modern readers need to have more than just the scripture because we are now reading it in a time that's different from when it was originally written. I can hear past Stephen getting mad at past Emily for saying that. because. Like footnotes are great. I think the extra study is great. But in in my younger life, I felt like, well, I was very like sola scriptura in the way that like the revelation that God was trying to offer me through the scripture, like the scripture itself was sufficient enough to teach me something about the heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I like I have study. I have plenty of study Bibles and multiple translations, and I haven't picked any of those up in a very long while, to be honest. Like the one I read every morning, mm. 
has zero footnotes. Like the only thing that is at the mm. bottom of the page is like in the New Testament where like they quote the Old Testament and they put the reference in the footnote mm. or something. Mm-hmm. Because I because I really do think it it also depends on the context in which you're approaching the Bible. Like if you're approaching it in a like a morning meditation type way or devotional type way, the footnotes can sometimes almost get in the way in my mind still like past Mm -hmm. Steven would have definitely said that current Steven even feels that a little bit. So Mm. like, I just, I I really do think it depends on like which, what context you're approaching your reading session in, you know? Mm. Sure. But I would add that the footnotes could actually add or enhance your devotional time. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Maybe, I, and, I can recognize that. And yeah, and I think that's just again, this is pastor this is pastor Emily now speaking. I see those in my church who are attending this Bible study and we have new people each week that are coming. People that didn't even sign up are coming, which is great. Hmm. And when we get a chance to look at a footnote or if someone says, "Hey, my my Bible has a footnote. Can I read it?" and I say, "Sure." And just seeing kind of like the aha moments in some of their eyes is so mm. is just warming to my heart because I know for many of them they're in their 70s, you know, late 60s, early 70s, some are even in their 80s and they're reading these footnotes and you can just see this light bulb go off over their head and they're saying, "Oh my goodness, I never thought of that before." And they're seeing the Bible in a new way and mm. it's not diminishing the way they've read the Bible before, it's just adding something new. And so that would that's just something, I guess, for each person to think about is having the opportunity to have that available. And if you prefer, you know, to do that extra work outside of your devotional time, then absolutely have a Bible that is just purely scripture and use that. And it's still meaningful. It's not any less important than a study Bible or anything like that. Um, But I mean, commentaries exist for a reason, and it's to help us ravel out biblical passages and biblical understanding. So mm. it is a tool that is helpful. I think my issue with study Bibles in the past has been, I just, just by personality, I tend to be rather completist about things. So like, you I know, I always feel a compulsion to like, every time I see the little letter saying that there's a footnote, I feel the compulsion to like jump down into it. And sometimes those reference other footnotes and sometimes those reference other verses that I'm trying to piece together. And it's like, I've been here for 45 minutes and I could have read like 10 Psalms by now, but I got Mm -hmm. through two verses. And for me, for me, it felt like it was more distracting from what I was trying to achieve than it was like aiding or instructing. But quite honestly, what it Mm. might, what it might take is someone who knows how to read a study Bible to teach me how to read a study Bible because I've never. Do you want me how to teach you how to read a study Bible? That would be delightful. <laughs> okay, my mind is going so many places right now. It sounds now, you like guys. I'm missing like, something, Emily. Go, yeah, go Josh, Josh. Go. go Josh. Okay, Stephen, when you started talking about like like past you, like kind of being up in arms at past Emily, my first thought was like, how much harm do you think has been done by people who encouraged people to not read study Bibles, like mm. who encouraged people to like quote unquote read the Bible for what it is, to, but they like told oh. that to uneducated people who like don't know what to think about the Bible and like don't know about different biblical genres and don't know how to tell literal from metaphorical to symbolic to 
I don't know. So there's like, and like, I'm thinking back to like our Colts episode. And like, to be honest, I feel like a lot of groups that like get hyper-focused and often get centered around like a really specific thing are often groups that like cherry pick and like form an entire realm of theology around like one or two verses instead of like reading the story mm, and reading mm-hmm. like the the narrative arc that the Bible's trying to show us. Hmm. Yeah. I should be clear, I was never explicitly taught to not read study Bibles. That was just my Oh no, life. no, yeah, I hear you. But that was just like where my mind was wandering. Right. And now, you know, Stephen mm. and I are still friends, even though past Stephen would have definitely like Bible thumped past Emily. Well, I mean, did you ever know me to do that? I mean, maybe beyond sophomore year. <laughs> no, that's a yeah. good point. I would have, I would have thought it quietly and quietly resented you for two more years. But well, your face would have said otherwise. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I always think I'm much better with a poker face than I actually am. So that's, yeah, no. this is fair. It's a good thing we record with only audio. Okay, but... that's a good point though, because what do you think about proof texting now? Oh, oh. That's this is this is kind of a different direction than the satirical conversation. But like, I feel like that's the next question. Yeah, I feel like that's the next question after we talk about genres, because Mm -hmm. like, can you proof text? Can you use every genre to proof text? And do they proof text the same way that because we all love a good proof text? I don't know if I told you guys this, but when I was like megaphoning to that street preacher, what, two months ago? Yeah, I was like throwing Bible verses back at him and I gave like a small exegesis versus eisegesis lesson to the crowd that was standing there. <laughs> wow. Dope. I, I, and I was like, this is what he's doing. I am expositing the text. I don't know. I didn't say it that clearly, but like I was, I was like doing like some Bible basics. <laughs> yeah. I'm so disappointed you didn't record that, but I am a little would, bit. Would, would have required it. consent. But anyway, If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, which helps others find the show. If you'd like to leave us a longer message, our email address is theravelpod at gmail.com. If you find this conversation valuable, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about the show on social media. You can join us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod. Thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color, off his album, Here. Find his work on Spotify and Bandcamp. And remember to subscribe to Ravel so that you never miss a new episode. Thanks for listening. Man, proof texting is fun, though. That's my... It's really fun. I get it. It's really fun. I I've done it. I do it sometimes. Like Mm -hmm. even when someone brings me a hard question, like I think that's what's I think that's why this question came up for me just now is because like when someone does bring a hard question to me about the Bible and I want to answer with, well, I went on all the context, like maybe it meant this. Some people think this like my gut reaction is still to like proof text Mm -hmm. with another part of the Bible. And to be honest, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's appropriate and sometimes I don't. And I don't know how to... When would it not be appropriate? Well, I guess like thinking about, like beginning to think about different biblical genres, my my thought is like historians proof text in a very different way than scientists proof text. Sure. And to be honest, I don't know if a religious proof text is also different or should be different. Or like a, a literary proof text, like just the fact that the Bible has genres means like it's literary.
Like it's right. literature. It's religious literature. Mm-hmm. And like we don't, do we like proof text in literature other places like with Shakespeare? Like do we reference other things Shakespeare wrote and we're like, well, like yes, he said this in Romeo and Juliet, but in, um, I can't think of another Shakespeare play. Hamlet. In Hamlet. There you go. He actually says this. So that proves this one line in uh, Romeo and Juliet wrong. No, we don't do that to answer your question. The Bible is the Bible is a tricky it's I don't know. It feels like it should be more obvious that you couldn't you shouldn't do that with the Bible because instead of trying to compare Shakespeare writing Romeo and Juliet to Shakespeare writing Hamlet, now you're talking about like okay, so Peter told stories to John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark and we're comparing mm. that and proof texting that against something that Paul maybe wrote. And if he didn't, we don't know who wrote it. Like, it gets way more complex. Yeah, and that's yet true. We, and yet we mm-hmm. treat it as if it's one coherent document because it's in, like, a single binding. Actually, I think I'm going to go back on that example that you just kind of tore down for me. Because, like, comparing the Bible within itself, I think, is different than proof texting. Yes. I think proof texting I is would agree. its own thing, now that I'm thinking about it. Well, so even even then, like a Shakespeare, so Shakespeare writes one play and he writes another play 20 years later. And you're like, in the, the one he wrote 20 years later, you're like, well, you had some different ideas about how death works or whatever mm. 20 years ago. And Shakespeare would be like, yeah, and I've grown 20 years since then. I have some more nuanced thoughts and I have a whole play to write about it, you know, mm-hmm. which gets even more complex when you have multiple authors inside the same Bible who are like, <laughs> that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah. When you try to do even the comparison game between like, well, Paul said this, but then John said in his third letter to whoever he was writing to, he said this. Well, like, I think well, what gets we... me so much about proof texting is that we all get annoyed at it, but we always get annoyed at the other people who are proof texting against us, like no. to prove their point. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like everyone yes. gets annoyed mm-hmm. at it. Everyone thinks they, the other people have the wrong interpretation, but it's always like, it's always our first instinct. To proof text back. It's a tired argumentation style. For so sure. So like how do we get around that? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Because like it's still my first instinct sometimes. Yeah. Like what's what's sitting in my brain right now is the way that a select number of passages that you can count on two hands, but only two hands is like famously the clobber passages for LGBTQ issues. Like you're talking mm-hmm. about homosexuality. And then somebody who's like LGBTQ affirming turns around and kind of proof texts in a way with their, their rote rebuttal of like, yeah, but you don't wear head coverings. It's like, okay, that's also a tired argument. Like we can't Mm -hmm. do what we're both trying to do. Right. But we're just like throwing these scripted lines out because we think they're, well, or the other side of that is when same issue, you know, talking about LGBTQ and I've heard a number of my people in my congregation say, they say, well, Jesus never said this. Like, he never talks about this issue. There's the other side of the coin where just uh, because it's not written. The absence of evidence is not evidence. You know, and like, I am an affirming pastor. You know, I am a reconciling pastor. But that argument still gets me like, eh, that's not how this works, people. Mm. Right. Mm. Did you guys ever read uh, any of those? like four views books. I can't remember exactly what the name of the series is called, but I'm pretty sure it's put out by InterVarsity. Mm, um, shoot. Yeah. 
you know what I'm talking about? I've read um, four views on sovereignty and four views on hell. And they're like always written by like Christian scholars. And the one, the epilogue on the hell book was really interesting. That was the one that I read. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did read that one. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember where he says at the end, like, he's like concluding some of their arguments and like how they compare it to each other and like their critiques of each other. And then he has a line in there somewhere. It's written by Preston Sprinkle. He co-authored a book with Francis Chan and he has his own stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But he had some line in there about like all of these authors take the Bible seriously and are making like scriptural arguments. And that's why we should take them seriously because they all take the Bible seriously. Mm. Yes, I remember that. You remember that? But mm-hmm. what I think, like thinking back on that, as much as I can appreciate that like unifying feature, uh, like none of them talked about like the genres of the books they're quoting. And maybe that's mm-hmm. just because of academia and like, you already have to have so much knowledge to be able to engage in a certain discussion. But I don't know. That annoys me. Dang. I agree. I think like, it should annoy I, you. <laughs> I think you're yeah, right like to going be back annoyed. to satire. Like if if like scholars decide that a book is satirical, to me, that doesn't proof text the same way as a historical biographical text. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Now I'm just angry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stir up so much anger in this episode. I don't know. That's just like what I'm thinking about now. And I don't know. But it's hard because like I still want to proof text. Like when I think someone's taking the Bible out of context, like Mm -hmm. whether it's a street preacher or whether it's um, a new religious movement that I think is abusing people. And I want to say like, no, that's not real Christianity. They're not following Jesus. They're taking this out of context. That's not what it means. Like I always want to proof text back. Right. and. Maybe, I don't know, I, like it is my gut reaction, but I can acknowledge maybe that's not the best argument. Yeah, hmm. what's a way to combat that, that urge to want to do that? So I guess that brings me I've, back to like, how do we become more aware of the genres then and what we're reading? Study Bible, study Bible, that's it. <laughs> Emily needs to teach wow. a class on how to read a, read a study Bible and then okay. the, the problem will be <laughs> permanently <it>. solved. <laughs> yes, oh, absolutely. No. I think as a reader, setting aside the Bible, okay, just thinking of any book that you pick up, you have to know, one, how to read. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's the base layer. Yeah. Like, you need to know you need to know how to read and you have to have an understanding of what genres are in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because I think once you have an understanding of, you know, I can tell the difference between I can't even give an example now because I'm just like thinking off the top of my head. But you should be able to distinguish different genres. You know, like if you go to a a bookstore or a library, they're labeled, you know, different sections. And, you know, here's fiction and nonfiction. And, you know, you think that's enough. But really, even within those sections, like there are even more specific genres in each book that are still thrown into a general category. So I think you have to be able to to read and to critically think. And then once you have that basis, tackling a book such as the Bible could be a, a big project for someone. Does that make sense? That it yeah. makes sense. What I'm struggling with, though, is when. This is really going to sound like I'm anti-study Bible. Dang it. But. Do it. Do my, it. I dare you. I dare you. My problem is, is that some books of the Bible have been called different genres by different scholars. And depending on which study Ooh, Bible yeah. you pick up and which commentary you pick up, you're either 
going to read Revelation as straight up prophecy like it was used in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. or you're going to read it like a political cartoon about Rome that has already happened, or you're going to like you're going to pick up Jonah and have your entire like opinion of Jonah colored by someone saying this is satire or this is nonfiction and we can trust this as historically factual. So here's my question then to you. Why is that a bad thing? To have scholarly disagreement? Mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing as someone who's like familiar with academia, but for someone who's not familiar with disagreeing dialogue, I think it can be really confusing and really misleading to people. That's yeah, that's what I'm getting at is like. So I kind of hear what you're saying, Stephen. The disagreement is healthy. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. There should be attention to be like attention to manage. But right. Like if I even lay- think disagreement about interpretation is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But to a lay person. Well, I don't know. I don't I don't know how you get past someone at some point has to train you how to read this and to even think critically about the commentary you're reading. But even then that person is coloring the way you read that commentary by teaching you how to pay attention to, I don't know. It's a weird, like that's my job. If you think that, about it. Yeah, Dang. that's a good point. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. But even then I'm not necessarily telling everyone to read it my way. All I'm doing is presenting a way and it's still up to the individual as to whether or not to take it running or to dive in a little differently that's true of pastor emily but that is not true of every pastor i mm-hmm. i think a lot of pastors would pick up the bible and say like i'm the one on the pulpit like i study this every day you can trust what i'm telling you about what i'm reading if they study it every day <clears throat> Emily, I really liked your point that you brought up. I don't think you meant it this way, but the like the first step is to learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Because I I think you're absolutely right that like we already have to have a working understanding of language before we even begin to understand something like translation. Exactly. Before we even begin to understand something like cross millennia literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Stephen and I, I know you're not on Twitter, Emily, but Stephen and I are currently in a very lukewarm debate about soup. And oh, yes. I totally forgot that you two are it, still it actually, doing that. Oh, my gosh. It just resurfaced again today. Like, someone resurrected Our it. Our friend Kel brought it up again. Dang it. But Yeah, Why? now we're talking about, like, definitions of breakfast. But, like, the, actually, it's a really good reminder about, like, the way language deconstructs. Like, that's yes. what the philosopher Jacques Derrida was getting at in the first place with deconstruction. He wasn't talking about faith. He was talking about the way language and ideas mm-hmm. break down. And I feel like... For anyone who feels like Bible stories are breaking down for them or like their understanding of them is breaking down, that like what's really happening is the language is breaking down. Right. And your understanding of it is following. And so I think that you brought up a really good point about like we need to learn how to read before we even learn how to read the Bible. Mm hmm. Before we can even tear apart the Bible. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that goes even further. You ever wonder? I've always wondered why youth pastors have their youth groups play the game telephone. As like a fun, like, hey, you tell someone at the end of the line a sentence and we'll see what the sentence is translated into by the end of it. Like, I, I, I always think about how like my, my youth pastor accidentally taught me how complicated the Bible is actually by letting us play That's that funny. game. Just like. That's funny. Game time before. That, that is hilarious. Right. Because like the Bible is like thousands of years of playing telephone between like. Literally. The guy mm-hmm. who had the inspiration to write it. 
and then translation down to translation. And even before that, like a lot of the Torah was oral tradition before someone had the gall to write it down. Mm-hmm. Like during Babylonian exile, so like we should probably write this it, down. You know? We've been talking about this for a long time. And if we're about to go extinct as a people, we should probably like write this down and leave a record of what we have been like trying to build ourselves up as, as a, as a people group. So like how long did any of the stories of Noah or Adam and Eve exist? <laughs> like just, just told by like bard to bard or like scribe to scribe. I think that's why I appreciate so much. Uh, efforts like the Bible Project. I'm sure you guys have seen those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I just love the way that they highlight like the narrative arcs and the the themes. And uh, to be honest, that's just been so helpful for me, especially as like some of the some of my thoughts about the the nature of the Bible and what to do with it has really changed over the last couple of years. Something like the Bible Project and authors who write about the Bible have really helped me a lot in like remembering that it. It is important, and it's an important piece of literature, and it's not just that easily written off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bible for normal people is another really good podcast for. Actually, that's Ooh, where I listen to yes. the episodes about Jonah. Have you listened yeah. to those ones? I definitely have. That's and, a great uh, podcast. Yeah. Actually, okay, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Those those episodes on Jonah are great. Actually, I think I have one of them left because it's a series. Mm-hmm. There, those episodes on Jonah is actually why that the why the book of jonah is my favorite book of the bible now like oh, oh interesting cool. he jared bias does such a good job of laying the whole thing out i am a big fan i think i'm gonna binge that tomorrow josh i just want to revisit it now yeah <laughs> you gotta uh, think about it dude get back to me on satire after you have binged that because i want to <laughs> know your, homework, your fresh Steven. thoughts on satire yeah, i can't thought about it i can't believe we haven't talked about jonah at all like what a weird okay you want to talk about Jonah a little bit? I'm kind of tired of not talking about it. So, sure, yeah. I remember some of the main we points. We briefly mentioned About it. the satirical yeah. argument. I think, so there are some, certainly some outlandish claims of the book that might stand out as satirical. Or at least like, I don't know, like help me think through that. Help me think that out loud because like being swallowed by a fish is kind of unheard of and like, like living through it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but have you seen a blue whale? Like they're huge. Yeah, but could you they're really huge. survive? Could you survive? I mean, I mean, science only can go so far, right? Um, you would okay. drown in krill uh, before you drowned in water if you got scooped oh, up by oh a blue fish. Oh, but like, okay. But the, actually, this is a good example of like someone can use like modern discoveries to uh, quote unquote debunk or disprove like certain potential claims of the Bible. But like or maybe prove. that in itself mm-hmm. a clue is that it's a different genre. Sure. Like it's trying to say something else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, I think Jonah's a great example. Like uh, the main points I can remember off the top of my head are the king of Assyria being, a, or the king of Nineveh in the story mm-hmm. being a very important context clue because cities didn't have kings back then. The nation states had kings. Assyria would have had a king. And he's mentioned mm-hmm. in the Bible. Nowhere else in the Bible or historical records mention a king of Nineveh. It would almost like be like me saying the president of Seattle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like me making a joke. About, it would be like a political joke. And also, they, if I remember right from the episodes, scholars and historians have dated the authorship of Jonah to be after the fall of the Assyrian Empire. But the book of Jonah presupposes a reality in which God saves Assyria. 
which is like kind of where I was thinking along the lines of satire imagines an alternate reality to point us oh, to the real reality. Sure. Oh, wow. Those are the main ones I can remember I, about Jonah. I think one of my favorite things about Jonah is like the outlandish characterization of like his whiny attitude. Like the whole, like, oh, yeah. like from the first chapter, like what other prophet is held up in the Bible or like what other story showcases like someone who actively wants to disobey and even by the end of it is complaining about being too hot in the sun. Nicodemus maybe? Does Nicodemus do that when he's like rebuilding Jerusalem? I, not as, not to the extent that Jonah did. Oh, that's Nehemiah. Oh, Nehemiah. you're right. I'm sorry, yeah. Nicodemus. Oh my gosh. He's you're the born right. again guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, no, I don't, not to the same extent that Jonah did. I mean, like, Jacob gets kind of whiny. But, again, not like Jonah. Jacob with Esau. Yeah, I know. Like, Jonah Jonah stands out for being like, wow, from beginning to end, this guy is just kind of a loser, and yet God still uses him, <laughs> which I think is one of those principles that you can lift out and be like, okay, so right. God can even use a broken person, a wounded person, mm. as a vessel to, like, mm-hmm. transmit his grace to an entirely different people group that maybe at the time of this writing is already gone and we're trying to imagine like, dang, if only someone even as stubborn as Jonah would have gone and tried, Mm. you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) like Mm. what if he was actually forced to do it and we're imagining an Israel where, where like a prophet didn't ignore that call. So he's forced to do it by like, okay, Mm. you charter his ship and it goes the opposite way and a big storm happens. I do think that's a good case for your point about like not needing study Bibles all the time. Like, I think that's a good point about like you can read a narrative for the narrative's sake and get lost in the story and you can learn and experience yourself the story Mm -hmm. um, without knowing exactly what all this. For instance, I'm reading, um, I'm reading a satirical book right now, actually. It's called The Sellout. It's about being black in America and it's ridiculous. It's got caricatures in it. I get some of the references, but to be honest, there's a lot that goes over my head. Like you ever like listen to a song? I feel like rap does this a lot. You ever listen to something and you're like, oh, I know you're referencing something, but I I don't get it. Like, I feel like this book for me is that like I got a lot of the he made a lot of references to psychology in the beginning, like psychological fathers and like famous experiments. Yeah. And he like did a bunch of like clever puns on them. And I got those. But now later in the book, when he's not talking about psychology, I like don't really get what he's talking about, but I can like still enjoy it for the story. Yeah. It's sure. like Michael Scott saying like, ah, inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday. Like you're just, you're like, yeah, man, I wish I could comprehend, like fully comprehend the genius that's happening. Cause you can recognize it when it's happening, even if you don't completely mm-hmm. comprehend it. And well, I think to be Jonah, honest, that's how I feel reading the Bible a lot of the times. Totally. And Jonah in particular, why it's my favorite book in the Bible is like, so many things, so many layered things are happening inside this one character, but also the characters he interacts with out like mm-hmm. the, the, the ship crew or whatever. I also think that's more pervasive than proof texting. Mm. Like, like stories stick in our mind. Like that's why, like even people who grew up in white evangelicalism in America or like people who have deconstructed or have changed denominations or faiths entirely, or those of us who just like grew up on veggie tales, like. Well, a lot of us like know mm. these Bible stories by heart and they like stick with us, even if our faith dramatically changes. Sure. And it's because they're stories. We remember right. the stories, not the proof texts. Yeah, you identify with the narrative. Because the narrative invites you to live it yourself or at least imagine it yourself. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think where, where mm. Jonah gets particularly interesting is 
the way that Jesus almost like pulls it into his own teaching and into the New Testament. I think it's come up on Ravel before, like a, a common uh, a common argument for the historicity of Jonah is like, oh, well, Jesus talked about it as if Jonah was real. So why wouldn't he be real? But if, uh, we've established already, like Jesus talks about the prodigal son as if he was real, but was he, you know? Right. But I mean, like the so many parallels. I mean, he even he even calls it by name saying like, just as Jonah was uh, three days in the fish, like so the son of man will be in the belly of the earth. I'm butchering that quote, but you get the, you get the picture. Mm-hmm. But even the parallels of him like falling so hard asleep during the worst storm that the ship crew has ever seen <laughs> that they have to wake him up and then yeah. they cast lots and then they throw him over. And then there's stories of Jesus falling so hard asleep in the boat of fishermen. And they're like, Jesus, what do you, why are you, how are you sleeping? And he wakes up and he calms the storm. Kind of a big deal. Seems like a very powerful parallel. You know what I've always wondered? I've always wondered if Paul's shipwreck was also written to be connected to either one of those stories. Whoa. But I've never thought about this with anyone. Oh. Like, he probably got shipwrecked. Like, the New Testament is pretty obviously biographical in some places. Right. Especially in Acts. But, like, maybe he was still making a narrative connection in the way he wrote about it. Mind blown. That's a fun one. See, that's the, the way themes jump out at you, like, the mm-hmm. Bible has something to teach, even, even above the genre, in a way. Like, yeah. yeah, I think it's great. Like, mm. grab a study Bible, know exactly what kind of psalm you're reading. Because sometimes, sometimes you read a psalm and you're like, this psalm has nothing for me today. But then you could read it, like, in a much worse mood, like you're struggling with something at work or you just experience mm-hmm. tragedy in your family. And you read the exact same psalm and you're like, how is it that this person thousands of years ago knows exactly what I'm feeling? Right. And you don't have to be familiar with the, with mm. the context or have to be familiar with the, the genre in order to connect, you know? Just so you know, I do like Bibles other than study Bibles. I know. Okay. okay. So <laughs> that's, and I like Bibles other than just straight <laughs> scripture too. I'm just, it's the thing to come back to. Jonah, man. Jonah. I know. I do feel like, I do feel like it's been really helpful for me the past couple years to know what other people have thought about those Bible passages, like Googling commentaries um, yeah, or like the, the blue letter Bible app and website has some good oh, yeah. Yeah. resources. Mm-hmm. Bible um, Odyssey is a great one too. Oh, I haven't heard of that one, but I feel like it's just been really good for me to remember that like, I am not experiencing the text for the, like the text is not being perceived for the very first time. Like hundreds mm-hmm. and thousands and millions of other people have read those texts and had thoughts about them. Totally. And, to be honest, I also think it's kind of a safeguard against someone trying to superimpose a harmful theology eisegetically onto the text. Like they're reading into sure. the text something that isn't there for their own or someone else's gain. And I think that like looking up what other people think about it and getting a variety of perspectives. Like I, I like, Stephen, that you highlighted disagreements about genres. Mm-hmm. I think that's excellent to point out because mm-hmm. I think that's good to know and read about. And get a variety of perspectives. Yeah. Jonah's, yeah, Jonah's always the one that sticks in my brain too. Like, uh, there was a time in my life that I really cared about getting it right, whether Jonah was a real person and whether he was actually swallowed by, like, swallowed by a fish. Mm -hmm. But now I can pretty confidently and comfortably say that I get enough value from the story that I really don't care. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if that sounds sacrilegious, but like, it's not an interesting debate for me anymore. 
Sure. Yeah. I think in some places, okay. in some places in the Bible, that's important to talk about. Like historical Jesus is a very difficult conversation compared to like New Testament narratives of Jesus. Like if you're trying to mm-hmm. look for extra biblical mentions of his name or mentions of the date of his crucifixion or, you know, like you're looking at Josephus and all these other other contexts. I think those are important conversations, but I think more often than not, I kind of getting back to my earlier answer where it's like, sometimes if I don't Mm -hmm. understand it, I just am more comfortable ignoring it and looking for the thing that needs to be taught to me in the moment rather than like really parse the details. Okay. Here's a question. I know we're kind of at the tail end here, but oh shoot. I feel like I have to ask this. What Bible story, not proof text, not like single verse, what Bible story or book do you wish was not included in the Bible sometimes? <gasps> oh. I think mine is Revelation. It took me a couple of seconds to think about it, but I think it's Revelation. Revelation rings pretty true to me. Um, my reasoning personally, I feel like I should explain that. That was kind of a bold statement. Um, <laughs> part of my reasoning is seeing like how it's been used over the last, especially the last 50 years to, uh, in my opinion, widely distract from the point of Christianity. Mm, totally. And lead people down um like obsessions uh with the future and honestly cause a lot of anxiety in a lot of people. And to be honest, I think that's very harmful. Not just to people, but to Christianity at large. Hmm. Not that other harm hasn't been done. I don't want to sweep that under the rug, but I just uh Revelation's just so annoying to me. I don't uh I feel like I can talk about it and explain it a little bit, but like I don't I don't see the point as much as I see the point in other things. Like the history of a people and narrative structure. And it's just so different. Plus it almost didn't get included anyway. Like when can we have a new council? <laughs> yeah. When can we have a new council? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, and I'd have to really like hash out my answer more, but the first thing that came to mind was the book of Job. Oh, what? Wow. Oh, what? Okay. Please hash yeah. it out a little bit. What's um, your thought initially? I I think the first thing that comes to mind, maybe not the entire book. Um, I I think the well, no, because that goes against what you're asking us to do. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to rewrite the story. Wait, she doesn't want to write it out. Well, I was gonna say, I guess the the whole story of God and Satan basically like betting on Job and like you know God saying, okay, Satan, like bring on your your worst and see what happens to to Job. And then all these horrible things happen to Job and it's like, oh, but yet Job like still praise God and blah, blah. sometimes like sometimes I just hear people talk on it in the same way. Like I don't hear anyone bring any new insight or anything refreshing. It's always the same lesson. And that's what I get frustrated with. So that's why I'm just mm. like, just throw it out. Mm. If you can't wow. learn something new from it, if you can't take something other than this, I don't I don't want to hear it anymore. Because I've heard it, <laughs> but I know I, I don't. I don't entirely want to do that, so that's why I was kind of like hesitant. Yeah, because it informs some weird, weird philosophy or weird theology about like spiritual realm over and above mm-hmm. the physical realm in a way, like different planes of existence. Yeah. Oh, despite that, I love Job. I think Job might be one of my favorite books. Like throughout all of my experience of Christianity, and like the way that my views have changed off and on sometimes about the Bible. I've, I think I've always loved Job. That's so interesting. Stephen, what about you? Man, ask me 
a year ago and I would have asked for the <laughs> book of Ecclesiastes to be written out completely because I think it's such mm. a downer of a book. Like it is oh. legitimately depressing to hear like the wise king talk about how literally everything is meaningless. Like he's found everything to be wanting and he's not satisfied. And like, what, what's the mm. point? Why do we do it? Again, ask me that a year ago, I would have said Ecclesiastes. Now I see the value in it. Yeah. Oh, good. And that's a future episode that we talk about. But I think, I think right now, especially the way I'm thinking politically and the way, uh, the way I think nonviolence is prized or ought to be prized as Christians. I wish that basically everything from escaping Egypt to establishing the nation of Israel could be written out as far as the, like as far as the Canaanite conquest and like the wholesale slaughter of cities and towns as like ordained and directly like commanded by God. Like, I don't think God commands anyone to kill anyone else. So, Man, we might have to talk about that. Episode. I know we're running out of time here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's that feels that feels right to me. But yeah, I, the the Canaanite conquest is so hard, and I think it's been used to. I think it's actually there are passages that have been proof texted to say like, no, this is mm-hmm. actually why we Christians should own Jerusalem and not those not those uh, those Muslims, and we launch the Crusades. And, sure. you know, like it's used to justify a lot, a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think God was ever like that. And I just don't think the people of God had a complete grasp of what God was like until Jesus was here. So like God has always been like Jesus, but we haven't always known it. Mm-hmm. But they but they write their victory in such a way that it was God ordained because of course it was right. Um, that that yeah. that was the way military conquest was viewed in that day was the gods must be happy with us or the God over us must be happy with us. If he also, Oh man, now I'm just thinking about proof texting again. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Like you just have got me thinking about how, like I bet every book in the Bible has been used throughout history to proof text something awful between crusades and Holocaust and end times, anxiety and oppression of people, slavery. I bet every book has been misused. Absolutely. I so. really enjoyed this discussion about genres. I feel like it's a difficult subject to talk about. It was so helpful. And we didn't even talk about like some of the problematic stuff until like right now, but like <laughs> it's fun cliffhangers I, I, though. I think it's a great conversation to have. It's so needed. Well, thank you. I'm uh I'm I enjoyed that. It was wonderful. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, I have ideas for future episodes, is what I have. Oh, okay. Well maybe i I feel like you should say them now. Well, I definitely. What do you What do you wanted to talk about after talking about all of this? Because we started with satire. Well, I just I definitely want to talk about Ecclesiastes and oh yeah, the search for like capital M meaning. Because I mean, like we even say it in our oh. intro for Ravel, right? Like seeking seeking meaning at the end of it all, and we we used a capital mm-hmm. M when we wrote the logline. So we did. But Ecclesiastes feels like a book in our Bible that is like you won't find it. Oh man! The, unless you read it with the right lens of like understanding the genre or just under like Mm -hmm. (laughs) again we've provided a foundation then also emily you made me think of the uh the bible project video about job that's the most viewed video of theirs of all time that is true and it's great it is a great video yeah 
Well, thank you guys. I really appreciated this conversation. It was great. I have been appreciating the uh, the episode discussion we've been having in our private Discord server with our patrons. Yes. Oh, yeah. Jeff Hall, Courtney oh, Clark, like coming in clutch with a lot of good thoughts about cults after that episode. And it's been mm-hmm. it's been so much fun to go back and forth and do it in a place where like it's not Instagram comments, it's not a Twitter thread. It's really nice, and I really like the the seeds of like a community we're starting with the patron group. Oh, Courtney, you asked me some great questions. I know I already thanked you for this, but you made me fall down the deepest rabbit <laughs> hole about Nexium and like different sociologists' take on it. Like, I found a doctoral dissertation. I like still want to wow. go back and read it. Like, you made me like think a lot. <laughs> like, I put more effort into looking. <laughs> I put more effort into looking up answers to your questions than I did the Colts episode. <laughs> That's pretty solid. Wow. Good work. Thank thank you. you. So if you want to inspire such deep rabbit hole dives, uh, you can join our Patreon if you'd like. It's patreon.com slash Ravelpod. Also, if you want to support us, but you don't feel like you can afford small dollars every month, please leave us a review. Uh, Honestly, that helps probably more than anything else to Mm -hmm. help us get discovered to uh, other people that want to think about these things. Well, to end our uh, time this week, Emily, would you uh, lead us out? Sure. Reading the Bible can be a, an amazing experience, a complicated experience, and sometimes we don't know where to start. Sometimes we don't know how to read it. Sometimes we're stuck on ideas or genres or meanings, but at the end of it all, we're all reading and unraveling this together. It's meant to be a journey. It's meant to be dove in too deeply, and sometimes we may not have all the answers, but that's okay. 